Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Claire Eldridge, the author of From Empire to Exile, History and Memory Within the Pienois and Arqui Communities, 1962 to 2012. And the book was published by Manchester University Press in 2016. Hi there, Claire. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on France and Algeria? Certainly. So um, in many ways, I think I'm an unlikely candidate to be a French historian because uh, I have no familial connection to France. Uh, I didn't go to France on holiday as a child and and at school um, I didn't really like French lessons, (laughs) which I possibly shouldn't admit. Um, And then when I went to university, I um, was very interested in, in British imperial history, particularly in the Middle East. And as part of that, I joined the, the University of St. Andrews Middle Eastern Society. Hmm. Um, and then uh, they screened the Battle of Algiers. And I was completely hooked from that point onwards. I was just so fascinated by this history that I knew nothing about. And that really was the start of me um, exploring French colonial history, particularly France and Algeria. And the more I learned, the more engaged and interested I became, even to the point of picking up my French language again. Do you feel like that background in British imperial studies gives you a different perspective or approach to this material? I think I'm always very struck by the differences between the two um, contexts, especially when it comes to the post-colonial and the ways in which the debates in France, I feel, are a lot more prominent um, than in Britain, where colonial history, um, Britain's imperial history, is not discussed in the same way and in many ways is much more muted as a, as a public topic. Mm-hmm. So the book, Claire, is focused on these two communities, the Pienois and the Aki, in the decades that followed the end of the Algerian War. I just wonder if, if we could start with some background on these communities, just for those listeners who aren't as familiar with what those terms mean, Pienois and Aki. Could you give us a broad sketch of who we're talking about? Certainly. So Pienois is the term that is commonly used to refer to the European settler community, Um, of French Algeria. And these men and women were not necessarily all French. They came to Algeria from a range of different European countries over the course of the 19th century. Um, And then naturalization laws were passed in 1889 and 1893, which made these men and women into French citizens. Mm -hmm. As a community, by the mid-20th century, they constituted roughly 10% of the overall population of French Algeria. And they were very attached to both the idea of themselves as Algerian, uh, as in very tied to the land. They felt that they'd really contributed to um, developing it, but they also uh, felt themselves to be French. And so the, the term French Algerian, French Algerians really encapsulated, I think, the, the dual sense of their identity. Um, they were very committed to France remaining in Algeria, mm-hmm. and um, that, that helps to explain why they left departure from Algeria so late. It was only really once independence became inevitable and very clearly on the horizon that um, the settlers started to leave, and many of them left it very, very late before they ultimately decided that they couldn't stay in an independent Algeria, which is why you see a very large um, number of them migrating across the summer of 1962. And effectively, the vast majority, almost the whole of the one million strong settler population left Algeria in the summer of 1962 and migrated to France. 
and the Haki. Um, so the Haki um, were Algerians who were enrolled in the French army. Um, the term Haki first appears in um, 1956, and it's used to designate um, military units of native auxiliaries used to undertake um, active combat missions. But over the course of the War of Independence, the term gradually broadens out to include all native auxiliaries, whether they were employed in a military or a civilian capacity. Mm. And the number of Haki peaks at around 210,000 in 1958, and then gradually declines from that point onwards. And there aren't that many Haki left by the end of the War of Independence. And at that point, those who were still engaged with the French um, the vast majority of those opt to hand in their uniforms and they hope that they can then return uh, to their previous lives. But the context at the end of the War of Independence makes that impossible for many. Mm. So there's a lot of violence um, at the end of the war and, and the Haki are perceived to have been traitors, although, as, as we might discuss, that's a very problematic label and not necessarily how they see themselves. Um, so as a result of the violence that sweeps across Algeria, a number of Haki and their families seek to leave and around, it's very unclear how many in total leave, but somewhere in the region of 60 to 75,000 um, are killed in the violence at the end of the conflict mm-hmm. and somewhere in the region of 60 to 70,000 manage to leave um, Algeria and come to France. What about the historical relationships between the two communities? Yes, it's a really interesting question, and in some ways, it's it's quite difficult to answer because when when we talk about the Pianoa community and the Haki community, we are inherently homogenizing them. Mm-hmm. Whereas, of course, during the colonial era, they and well, they continue to be diverse in the post-colonial period, but they're also very diverse in the colonial era. So, Haki were predominantly um, from rural areas. They were usually um, unskilled and illiterate men. So, the most likely form of contact they would have had with Europeans would have been working for. Europeans, mm. but again, predominantly Europeans who were based in rural areas, so farmers, landowners, rather than um, the urban European settler population. And the majority of settlers were concentrated in urban areas. So there would have been some contact between the two communities, but not um, necessarily as constant or as intense as it becomes in the post colonial period. And the relationships of the two communities to the French state? Um, I think when it comes to the Pianoa, you have a continuation of, of quite an um, ambiguous relationship to the French state. So on the one hand, during both the colonial and post-colonial eras, they're very strongly attached to their French identity. They want the French state to um, to recognise that identity and to see them as an integral part of the nation and to recognise their contribution. But at the same time, there is a certain sense that they're not quite accepted as fully French mm-hmm. and a certain um, inferiority complex that plays out both in the colonial era and then also in the post-colonial period. Whereas for the Haki, there is uh, an argument perhaps to be made that the continuity lies in um, the colonial nature of their relationship with the French state. Certainly um, a number of Haki descendants would make the argument that um, the Haki were never decolonized and that the ways in which the French state uh, treats the community in the post-colonial period mirrors the practices that were prevalent during the colonial era towards that population as well. So Claire, the book is divided into two parts. Part one, the era of absence, which takes us from 1962 to 1991. And part two, return of the war from 1991 to 2012. So I guess I just want to ask in a broad sense about the division of the book into those two parts and the thinking behind that structure. 
Certainly. So the the book has, as the publisher pointed out, quite a complicated structure. Um, and the two halves were my attempt to reflect the kind of the traditional um, narrative about the ways in which memories of the war have played out, which is this idea that in the immediate aftermath of what had been a very divisive um, and controversial conflict, the French state opted not to talk about the war. So it passed a series of amnesties and there were no public commemorations of the war or those who fought in it. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know, in fact, it was not officially referred to as a war until 1999. Before that, it was usually called Operations to Maintain Order or simply the events. And then the notion is that during the 1990s, a series of factors came together and prompted the war to return, in inverted commas, to public attention. And that's the point at which you start to see public debates and the interaction between memory-carrying communities. Whereas my book is about disrupting that narrative Mm -hmm. a bit, and in particular kind of filling in the supposedly silent pre-1990s era with a range of voices, because as, as I argue, the communities connected to the war did not, of course, forget, and in many respects were not silent. It was just that the, their voices weren't reaching the public domain for various reasons. So the, the two halves are sort of the traditional chronology of the War of Independence, and then within each half, I sort of try and um, nuance that chronology. So Claire, throughout this work, you're looking at grassroots collective mobilization and memory activism. And these are two kind of phrases and, that you use. So what are these things and what were they in 1962? You know, how do they change over time by the time you get to 2012? I wanted to focus on a grassroots perspective precisely because I think the reason the idea of, of the Algerian war being forgotten has taken root is because there was so little publicly said about the war. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at it from a, from the bottom up, you can see that the communities involved didn't forget and mobilized in their own ways. And I also wanted to convey the idea that memory is not something that exists just in the abstract, but requires individuals to collate memories, to select what will be the most strategically useful narratives to package these and to disseminate them. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of, of memory as, as a, an agency-driven process. And I'm mm-hmm. very interested in the individuals who undertake this memory work on behalf of wider collectives and to think about those who then subscribe to these narratives, who subscribe to the associations that are disseminating them, who attend the commemorative events and, and what they get out of it and also what they put into it. And certainly with respect to the PNOR community, associations have been really key to this as vehicles for the memories of the community, for narratives about their history, but also as bodies that bring together what was quite a dispersed post-colonial community and help that community construct an identity or give that community a collective identity that individual members can then subscribe to and buy into. Um, Claire, I want to ask you in in, in a moment a little bit more about your sources and how you access the grassroots and um, the memory activism of these communities. But uh, before I do, I I guess I want to know, I mean, especially anyone who works in French history, they hear memory and they think of, you know, Henri Rousseau or Pierre Nora. And I just wonder if you could situate your approach to the issue of memory in relationship to these authors and talk a little bit about, you know, the frameworks that you're using to understand this material and these communities. Certainly. 
So Henri Rousseau, I think, was quite formative in my thinking because he obviously came up with his own periodization of memory when he talked about the Vichy syndrome. Mm-hmm. And he's also commented on the ways in which the Algerian conflict bears some similarities to the Vichy syndrome in terms of the way memories of it have evolved, while also being quite insistent that these are two distinct processes and two very distinct histories. So Rousseau was formative for me in that way. Pianora, I really like his idea of a lieu de mémoire. I think it's a very useful concept to talk about this idea of, of history of the second degree and the sites around which particular memories and narratives congregate. But I also share the views of other academics who have pointed out that his concept of lieu de memoir is quite restrictive mm-hmm. and that it, he doesn't discuss the colonial dimensions of French history. The French Empire is rather excluded from his definition of uh, les lieux de memoir. And he's also very opposed to group memories, which he sees as a threat to the more assimilationist ideas about French history and French historical narratives. And so in that sense, I have a lot more sympathy with Joe Winter and Emmanuel Stevens' no idea that popular memories and group memories do have something to contribute and are not necessarily threats, mm-hmm. but can actually be really interesting windows into different kinds of histories that would otherwise not be present within Nora's more rigid definitions, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so um, Winter and Sivan in their book War and Remembrance specifically situate that as a kind of counter to what they call Nora's premature and misleading obituary for popular memory. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, I, I wanted to do that for the Algerian war as well, to kind of look at the, the particular group memories and show that these um, are not things to simply be dismissed or to be seen negatively, but actually have some very interesting um, things to say about France and the state of memory politics within France, but also can be have been quite constructive of French uh, civil society in many ways. And here again, I would draw on Jay Winter, and I particularly liked his idea of fictive kin, and he talks about, mm. in relation to the First World War, agents of fictive kin. It's a, um, an anthropological term that he borrows um, to refer to the idea of the kind of agents of memories or the entrepreneurs of memories, the, the, mm. the individuals who sit between individuals and the state and kind of mediate these memories and create them and package them up. Right. And he also refers to them as kind of defective kin and also to the formation of associations as forming this kind of hidden prehistory prior to official commemoration. And I thought that was really applicable to the Algerian war, that you have all these agents of fictive kin operating at this grassroots level through associations, constructing these memories that form the kind of pre the, the prehistory of then the more public debates about the war that emerged during the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wonder, Claire, about post-colonial theory, post-colonial studies, how much you see the book as having been shaped by debates in that broad <laughs> very diverse field of, of work and scholarship um, and what, you know, contribution you see your work making in that sense of how we think about the post-colonial. I think my, what I would hope my work speaks to the idea of independence not being the end of empire and the ways in which the legacies of empire very much carry on into the post-colonial period. And I, I think it also emphasises the idea that histories of empire are not separate from national histories, that the two are completely intertwined. Mm-hmm. And groups like the Pianoir and also the Haki really exemplify that idea. 
that the history of empire is not separate from national history and that sometimes it takes the migration physically of the remnants of empire, if you could call them that, to the metropole to underscore that connection between those two histories. So let's talk a little bit, Claire, about how you're getting at the grassroots collective mobilization and memory activism of these communities. You mentioned these associations that you're looking at. And I guess I have a couple of questions. One has to do with the balance in the book. And I sort of know the answer, but I want you to say it anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> between the ways that these communities represent themselves and how much they're interacting with perceptions of them as communities, either by the state or the wider uh, French and even international communities. And then, yeah, the kind of nuts and bolts issue of sources. You know, what is the material that you're using to access the memories of these communities and the memory work that these communities are doing? So my My main goal with the book was to use outputs produced by the communities themselves Mm -hmm. and to try and get at how they were representing themselves, the choices they were making about what to emphasize or de-emphasize. So I looked at quite a broad range of sources, uh, memoirs, obviously, um, association publications. I'm very lucky in that the PNOR have been um, very assiduous chroniclers of their own history and their own experiences. There are a lot of memoirs out there. Associations produce newsletters, bulletins. Um, they also run various commemorative events for which you can find um, source material. Uh, the other thing I did is I watched quite a lot of television, which was very enjoyable for me mm-hmm. because I was interested as the war becomes a more prominent topic of public interest, then you see more and more television programs dedicated to it, including panel debates. And that allowed me to see representatives from different communities interacting with each other, which I was really interested in because one of the things I wanted to do with the book was think about the ways in which the the memories promoted by these different communities are reacting to and influenced by what other communities are doing and what other narratives are out there. So so I watched a lot of television. Um, I should say I didn't do oral histories, and that was uh, a difficult but conscious choice, highly driven by logistical reasons. Sadly, you only have so much time to do PhD research. Um, But it was also because if I had gone and interviewed people, they would have told me their perceptions about their past based on that moment in time. And that's very valuable. And people have done some really useful and good things with that. I'm thinking of Natalia Vince's fantastic book based on oral histories of female veterans uh, who fought with the FLN during the War of Independence. You can do some fantastic things. Uh, with oral histories, but I want what I wanted to do with the book was to trace chronologically the evolution of memories and to think about those memories as they were produced in particular contexts. I guess I also methodologically wonder about how you read the material that you're working with in the book, particularly understanding that these are communities trying to agitate for certain types of rights or acknowledgement, uh, sometimes financial, but other things as well. Uh, I suppose it's a cliche now about what against the grain, with the grain, <laughs> where, where, how do you see your, your process of reading this material and what were some of the challenges in that regard? So one of the, the challenges was was accessing these communities and particularly with respect to the Haki, who mm. um, I felt it was going to be very difficult for me to access them directly. So I was very reliant on the testimonies and memoirs that have been produced by activists within the community. And those mm. were very useful, but then I'm conscious that it is 
at a certain distance. And in terms of me reading them, I was less interested in are these true or false, because I, I don't think that's a very helpful way of looking at them, but thinking about what was being emphasised and why and what the end goal might be in those memoirs or cultural productions. So, for example, there hasn't been a lot of academic attention devoted to the wealth of material produced by the piano one, and often that's because it's seen as simply nostalgic or nostalgia-driven or nostalgia-free, as it's, as it's often referred to. Mm. And it, it is completely nostalgia-laden, that, that's absolutely true. But there are also lots of other things going on. So why are they nostalgic for the things they're nostalgic? What are they trying to achieve through this promotion of a very nostalgic, rose-tinted view of colonialism? And I think I think it's by reflecting on on the rationales that might be underpinning what is and isn't included that you can use this material productively. Mm -hmm. And also as well, to kind of go back to your previous question about sources, to think about the the different arenas in which these narratives are circulating. So Mm -hmm. definitely circulating in a printed format, but also memory as a kind of as a social in social spaces so through commemorative activities through gathering through uh, holding exhibitions uh, undertaking what they call pilgrimages but also physically embodying memory in monuments street names even a, there is even a piano art town and the same goes for the hockey community to think about the different formats in which they're seeking to disseminate the narratives about their community and their history. How do you get at, I'm, just, I'm trying to think about the location and the embeddedness of these communities within, you know, a broader, at least in the French context, French society and the interactions between not just these communities and the state as they are petitioning for various things, acknowledgement, recognition, uh, indemnity, whatever it is, but also within the wider community. Um, so, so you're looking at associations and we talked earlier about the relationship between the Pienwa associations and communities and the Aki, but what about other crossovers and relationships to a wider French society? Could you say a few words about that? Yes. So I think, again, one of the things I wanted to do with the study was show the different sets of interactions that are happening. And so, for example, the Haki community are quite a useful case study for this because for a long time there aren't narratives coming from within the community itself, which then allows a series of other groups to speak for or speak on behalf of the Haki uh, in service of their own agenda. So the piano do that consistently. Mm-hmm. Also veterans, um, elite Muslim Algerian representatives, the Bashag Abouelem, for example. Mm. In terms of wider French society, I think for a long time there is not much engagement and not much interest in these communities necessarily. Mm. So in the case of the Haki, this is often for practical reasons, that many Haki were housed in camps, which were often in quite isolated rural locations in France, and who was given access to those camps was quite strictly controlled. So even if you lived in close proximity to a Haki camp, you might not have had very much interaction. I think once the war becomes a more popular topic of public discussion, then you get more interest in these communities. And in some senses, that's a positive, and in some senses, that's a negative. With respect to the Pianoir community, for example, 
they were able to erect a number of monuments in France, particularly prior to the 1990s, and they were able to do this without anyone really noticing. And then as the commemorative climate around the war has changed, as there's been more public awareness of the conflict and of the different groups within the conflict, suddenly people have started to look slightly askance at these monuments to groups like the OAS or monuments that depict... Uh, those members of the OAS as victims. And so there's been pushback against that. So in that sense, the changing commemorative context has changed the nature of interactions. Mm. Um, But you can also see this working on another level in that when the Pied Noir first arrived in France, they certainly feel they faced a lot of hostility from the metropolitan French. So the interaction they felt they got in 1962 and in the immediate aftermath of independence was a very negative one. And that really helps formulate their sense of victimhood, the sense that they've been misunderstood by wider French society. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in other senses, they were dispersed into the wider population from the outset. So there was a constant interaction and once support from the French state, which was very extensive to help the Pionoir community integrate socioeconomically, once that kicked in, once there was an awareness that, in fact, the PNOR were not going to be a giant financial burden and, in fact, were probably going to help further the already considerable economic growth that was taking place, mm-hmm. then reactions to them became, if not more favorable, then certainly less negative. It would be hard for us, Claire, to really do justice to the diversity of activities and associations that you deal with in the book, but I wonder if you could just give us a kind of sense of a few of the main associations, if we can speak of main associations or dominant associations. And then in a broad sense to talk about what some of the tensions were between not so much the communities, but within the communities between different types of associations. You know, is there a buying for dominance? Is there a peaceful coexistence of different types of associations that have different agendas? If you could just sort of characterize for us the community associations in a a broad sense, I think that would be helpful. Certainly. So with respect to the PNOR community, You have associations forming very quickly. There are associations that exist during the War of Independence itself. Mm -hmm. And um, in the immediate aftermath of Algerian independence in 1962 and with the arrival of um, one million PNOR into France, those associations are particularly focused on obtaining practical material support from the French state mm-hmm. for the community. So one of the largest and oldest PNOR associations is a group called Anfonoma. I will spare you what that acronym <laughs> consists of. The PNOR associations, like many French associations, really like a good a good acronym. Yeah. But Anfonoma is there from the outset pushing for material uh, compensation and state assistance for the, the PNOR. And as I said, the French state does provide that. And Jan Skjolder-Zercher has written a great book that chronicles what he calls the politics of integration and really goes into a lot of detail about the extensive and unique support that was put in place by the French state. Mm-hmm. And because that support was so effective, it resolves a lot of the material problems that the settlers had when they first arrived in France. And this allows them to then start to think less about material claims that they want to make on the state and turn their attention more to moral and cultural claims they want to make against the state. So in the mid-1970s, you see this pivot within associations away from material concerns towards the more commemorative. And this also coincides with a shift 
in terms of who is directing these associations and the emergence of a kind of younger generation. So those who were in their adolescence really at the moment of independence. And the association that epitomizes that shift is called the Cercle Algerianiste, which is formed in, in 1973. And so that kind of cultural focus is what continues to dominate today. Um, in terms of peaceful coexistence, the narrative promoted by PNR associations is of unity and harmony, and they all stick together to both to promote the positive aspects of their own identity, but also to defend themselves against what they see as attacks from other groups. But beneath that rhetoric, in fact, there has been a lot of rivalry and a lot of dissonance among the different groups. And this emerges particularly forcefully in the, in the 1990s. In 1993, you have a very prominent um, piano art spokesman called Jacques Rousseau, who was assassinated in March of 1993, and it turns out he is killed by three other PNOR who were associated with a rival organization called Ustifra. And that really kind of it is the most extreme edge of this rivalry that exists between these associations. And I think it's no coincidence that the tensions between associations reached this really critical point mm. at precisely the same time that public attention is being increasingly turned um, to the war of independence. And so the stakes in, in terms of being able to claim a space within this newly opened up public discourse are raised. Mm -hmm. You also raise the issue in the book, Claire, of these communities as political forces and, and I guess voting constituencies. Uh, I wonder if you could just tell us in a broad sense how you have seen these communities influencing French politics with respect to the history and legacies of empire, but also more broadly, and maybe what was most surprising to you about the ways that these communities uh, shape French politics after 1962? I think one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to show the ways in which post-colonial communities have actively participated in the political process in the shaping of civil society within France. Mm -hmm. There is a connection between the PNOR community and the rights and even the far rights in terms of the narratives they promote, but also the ways in which they vote. But that's not the full picture. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that surprised me has been the flexibility of the community and the ways in which they will support, certainly especially at the local level, they will support politicians who they see as willing to engage with them and willing to further their agendas. And then if we think about the national level, it's not just politicians on the right who have wanted to or felt obliged to engage with the PNOR community. Um, politicians on the left have also seen the utility of making overtures to the community and in many senses passing legislation that would benefit them. So I'm thinking of uh, Mitterrand, for example. The PNOR were very suspicious of Mitterrand. He was not popular within PNOR circles, but it was in fact under his presidency that um, a full amnesty was extended to members of the OAS. He was also hmm. the president in 1987 when the most extensive compensation law was passed for the PNOR. So that has surprised me that this is not just a right-wing or far-right phenomenon. And when it comes to the hockey, many, or certainly some activists, made their names as activists opposing the state. And within the community, there is a certain degree of anger towards the state for the way it treated the hockey community and a certain sense of frustration that the state continues to not give the community what it ultimately wants. But at the same time, you also have individuals who have made productive alliances. Mwanda Mumu 
for example, who heads the association Agir. He has been a very effective, I think, bridge between the state and the community. You also have figures like Boussard Azni, who on the one hand, um, launched a lawsuit against the French state for um, what he termed crimes against humanity for the way they treated the Haki community. Mm. But he also served in Sarkozy's government, albeit quite briefly, uh, and then subsequently resigned. So I think the relationship in the state and these communities and representatives of these communities has been much more complex than perhaps popular perception would have it. What about the relationship between the Haki community and the wider Muslim community? And I know that community has tensions and splits within it. But I'm just thinking of questions uh, that might come up around uh, secularism, around the hijab, around questions about the so-called war on terror, like these kinds of issues where um, Islam is at the forefront of discussions about and conflictual discussions and debates in French society and politics. Can we say anything about the community in general or about segments of the community with respect to to Islam in France and those those other questions? I think it's difficult to say anything in general, um, and I would be wary about making generalizations. What I do think is interesting is that certainly in the publicly promoted narratives about the Haki community and its history, Islam is not all that prominent. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that is a deliberate choice because mm-hmm. the emphasis is often on Frenchness because that's a way to then make claims against the French state. Right. But on an individual level, I think Muslim faith has been quite important to many individual Haki. And also it is a point of connection between them and other Algerians living in France. And often these are two communities who are presented as irrevocably opposed because they were on opposite sides during the War of Independence. But there are, in fact, many connections between them. And many Haki feel themselves to be Algerian much more than they feel themselves to be French. Mm. Uh, So in that sense, I think the issue of Islam is a way of productively thinking about the the ways in which the identity of the Haki community is an individual Haki and their families is much more complex than the publicly promoted narrative, which has to simplify in order to achieve its strategic aims. Sure. And I think it's useful to remember that the Haki are not completely separate from other Algerians in France, mm-hmm. and that they have distinct histories. I'm not saying that their histories are the same, but there are also many points of commonality. And that's something that sociologists like Yulia Fabiano have explored in more detail than I was able to in the book. But I think that's a really interesting and important mm-hmm. um, perspective to take on board. There are, there are lots of shared characteristics in other senses in that both the Algerian immigrant community in France and their descendants in the Haki community and their descendants have been subjected to the same or similar processes of marginalization, including physical marginalization. These are communities that have often ended up in the same physical spaces as they sort of pushed out to the margins of French society mm-hmm. um, and have also been subjected to discrimination. And in in particular instances, that has created bonds between the communities and yeah. moments of collaboration between activists. But it also works in the opposite sense Mm. because there's also an awareness that in some senses they're all competing for the same scarce resources and that can um, push activists to to emphasise the differences between the communities and in the case of the Haki to emphasise the fact that you know, they were the ones who rendered service to France and therefore they should be rewarded for that over and above um, the Algerian immigrant community. So again, there's this tension of 
possessing a certain amount of commonality and sometimes that working in a very positive sense, but also at other times uh, driving a wedge between between two communities that otherwise would have a lot to gain from um, from allying and merging resources. Mm-hmm. I wonder too, Claire, about other lines of difference, you know, and categories of difference like class divisions within these communities. And I mean, we might make the assumption that everyone's the same because of the mm-hmm. position uh, and the situation of, and the ways in which people came to France after 1962. But also I'm thinking of yeah, racial, ethnic difference, religion, um, and gender, too. I wonder what roles those differences play in the communities and in, in the book. Yes. One of the one of the really interesting things about the narrative promoted by the PNR community is the ways in which it bleaches out diversity from the community. So you lose the sense not only of the different occupations, the different political um, affiliations, the different class identities of the settler community in colonial Algeria, and that you lose that and it's replaced with um, a a homogenized portrait of the community. And that is a strategic choice in that it allows um, the the emphasis to be placed on the unity of the community. But you do still have that diversity. And if we go back to the the assassination of Jacques Rousseau that I mentioned, Mm. one of the rationales behind that was deemed to be the fact that Rousseau was this very successful, well-connected media spokesperson. He was connected to Jacques Chirac. He was being talked about as as in line for a cabinet position. He was wealthy, whereas his assassins were three men who had really struggled to get their lives to re-establish their lives in France. They um, had got involved with the uh, the right, far-right association Ustifra because they came to it looking for financial support. They had records for petty crimes. They'd struggled financially. So they were in a very different um, category. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to the Haki, again, the Haki community, we keep using, I keep using the term Haki community, but this is not a natural community. This mm-hmm. is a group of people who were brought together because of a particular set of circumstances. And again, that community encompasses a range of differences. And I think you can see that in the kinds of activism that different individuals have pursued. And here again, you can see gender coming into this in that, as I talk about in the book, the sort of early activists who were, were men, it was often their activism was practical. They were on the streets. They were undertaking hunger strikes in the case of Abdul Karim Flesh. They were um, protesting against the state physically. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you come to a slightly later incarnation of activism, you have women like Batima Beznasi Lankou, Delilah Kershouche, who opted to use the written word mm-hmm. as a way of promoting their cause. And here were two women who enjoyed greater levels of education, who um, were in a better socioeconomic position. So you definitely see this diversity and those differences do matter in terms of how activism plays out and also how these communities are are structured. And uh, I guess another point I'd want to make is that the dominant narrative about the Haki community is that here are a group of individuals who failed to integrate and who have remained on the margins of society and socio and in socioeconomically deprived circumstances. And that is certainly true for some people. It is undoubtedly true that the nature of the way in which the state treated the Haki community after 1962 has meant that many have struggled. But there are also success stories, and that that's another nuance that often gets lost in the public portrayal or popular understandings of the communities, that there are Haki and their descendants who have done very well in France, who have professional 
jobs, who have very high levels of education. So there is a lot of diversity, but that's one of the things that often gets bleached out from these collective narratives promoted by activists mm. who are using those narratives for particular strategic ends. I wonder, Claire, about the effect of other questions that are being debated in France in the period that you look at. So I'm thinking about the memory of Vichy and the civil conflict in Algeria. I just wonder how these things and how they play out affect the work of these associations, how these communities respond to these things, and how the sort of discursive fields and political fields that we're talking about maybe intersect and are connected, particularly with respect to the histories of Vichy and Algeria. No, that's a great question. And and one of the things I really wanted to do in the book was to have this long long chronology precisely so that I could explore the ways in which events external to the communities impact the narratives they're promoting and the way they seek to engage with Mm -hmm. both the French state and the French um, public. So, for example, the the civil war in Algeria or the conflict in Algeria, I'm not sure, that everybody would agree it was a civil war, but the the violence of the 1990s in Algeria enables certain Haki activists to make an argument that, in fact, they saw this coming, Mm. that their history shows that the FLN have always been violent and willing to be violent towards their own citizens. Mm -hmm. And so that moment allows certain Haki spokesmen, by no means all, to to make that argument. Whereas for the Pianoir community, the conflict in Algeria in the 1990s allows them to argue that Algeria should never have been given as they see it to the FLN because they were not capable Mm -hmm. of running it and that they've simply destroyed everything that the the settlers built up. So Mm -hmm. these communities are definitely plugged into what is happening more broadly and will seek to use wider events to further their own narratives. And here you can see that very clearly with Vichy. Vichy, I think, in some ways represents a model for both communities. Certain Haki spokespeople have said, you know, we want what the Jews have got, by which they mean we want recognition from the state of its responsibility for what happened to us. And they are clearly thinking about Chirac's Veldive speech. Mm-hmm. You can also see the impact of international events and also discourses around particularly the idea of victimhood mm-hmm. um, and reparations. And you can see this in the ways in which both the Pianoir and the Haki communities have looked to the courts and to try to take a more judicial approach to gaining recognition for their histories and to try and enshrine those histories in legal terms. And that is very much informed both by Vichy, but also by wider international trends um, and prosecutions of for war crimes of um, figures connected to, for example, Bosnia, Kosovo, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask about, you know, the response to international conflicts and, you know, events like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the Gulf Wars or the so-called war on terror, the ways in which those types of issues and events external to, well, including France, but also external to France, mm-hmm. shape the communities and their activisms. Uh, yes, definitely. I think in the case of um, the Gulf War and also the first Palestinian Intifada, those are part of the international circumstances that help refocus attention on, on the Algerian war in France, mm-hmm. partly because they make French people reflect on Arab communities and Muslim communities of which they have growing numbers within their own borders. Similarly, the Algerian violence in the 1990s also makes them reflect on that. Whereas in terms of Vichy, it's more about the idea of thinking about silences and thinking about um, pasts that you might rather forget. That's what prompts 
reflection on, on Algeria. The war on terror is, is interesting. Um, the PNOR community, the more sort of hardline, far-right elements of the associational milieu have latched on to the war on terror as a way of demonising Algerians in France. Mm. And that for some of them has become almost an obsession to the exclusion of actually their own history. And I've been really struck by this mm. in um, looking recently at, at publications in relation to the centenary of the First World War, in which some PNOR publications are barely mentioning this, even though, of course, their ancestors played a significant role in the First World War. And normally they would grasp any opportunity to promote the ways in which they rendered service to France. Sure. Um, but instead, they're just really fixated on what they would call Islamic-inspired terrorism and it's mm-hmm. to the exclusion of all else. And I think that's interesting. But they have to toe a careful line there because, on the one hand, they, they want to demonise Algerian immigrants in France, but without tying Haki with the same brush. So they have to make a clear distinction between those two communities. That's fascinating. Well, and I'm wondering, you know, I know we're going to 2012 and I don't want to make you make the book longer and come right up to the present, but I am sort of curious about, you know, as you say, as you kind of continue, I imagine, to track these associations and their publications and to notice what they're responding to, whether you noticed anything in particular and it has to be asked around this recent French election. I'm thinking in particular of Macron's uh, statement about colonialism and mm-hmm. crime against humanity. I just, I just wonder what you noticed as these events were unfolding more recently and how you see the kind of legacies of what you're looking at in the book coming right up to the present. Macron, I think, is, yes, is a good example of the ways in which the PNOR community are very reactive, especially when they perceive that they have been slighted in some way. So mm. in the wake of Macron's comments, it was the Circle Algerianiste, so this organisation that formed in, in 1973, that issued public criticism of that. And what often gets missed in discussions of Macron's statement is that he did apologise shortly afterwards to the PNOR community. Mm. And so he backtracked from his original original statement, and Jennifer Sessions has, has written about this very recently. He backtracked mm-hmm. and kind of pivoted to the community and sort of apologised and said, you know, he didn't mean any disrespect in, in a way. And I think that's interesting as well because it shows the ways in which the PNOR certainly still wield a certain amount of power and, and influence, especially in the run-up to your elections. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, we talked before we started recording the interview, Claire, about um, the <laughs> response of the communities to your work. And I know you said that the book hasn't been available in French, and so that would limit the potential response from the Aki or the Pianois communities. But I guess I wonder, you know, what do you think they would think <laughs> about what you've done here? And again, I'm, I'm using they, which is as if I haven't read your book, but I just wonder what you anticipate if, uh, and I hope it will be, uh, the book is translated into French, what what some of the reactions of the, to the book have been so far uh, from various communities, and then, yeah, what you imagine these communities would think about the work that you've done here. Um, it's a very interesting question. I, I would like the book to be translated into French because I, I'm very interested in the reaction from a French readership. I would also say that I'm slightly nervous, mm-hmm. particularly with respect to the PNOR community. I think that in some senses, I hope they would like the fact that someone has devoted serious attention to them and, and sought to try and understand what they've been doing mm-hmm. and also to 
to track the ways in which they have influenced post-colonial society. But I also imagine that they would not be pleased with some of the things that I say. And this is based on also they have tradition of reacting quite negatively to academic uh, scrutiny. Associations often find academic discourse about the piano community to be critical of them and they don't really like having their processes and their memories deconstructed because for them, obviously, those memories are personal memories. They're not simply an abstract thing to be interrogated. Benjamin Stora, who, of course, was born in Algeria, uh, is a particular focal point for a lot of piano hostility towards the academic community. And he, at one point, said, he said, and I thought he put this really nicely, he said, you know, they don't want to see their pain drowned in an ocean of footnotes. So for them, the critical distance of academic discourse doesn't really capture what they see as the very raw emotions of their experiences. For them, memory is a mark of authenticity. Whereas for a historian, memory is a source to, that is very valuable, but is also open to critique and interrogation and is one source among many. Mm-hmm. And so these different understandings of the relationship between history and memory possessed by the PNR community and possessed by the academic community can make for quite a tense relationship, I think, and have done on many occasions. Right. So this is a wild card question. (laughs) Okay. We were talking and I was thinking about the book and revisiting it recently, you know, as I was preparing for our conversation. And then when you brought this thing up earlier about these monuments that went up sort of unbeknownst to people. And I was just thinking about the debates about, you know, how to physically commemorate honor, I don't know what terms we want to use, uh, Pianoir history and efforts that have been made. You talked about, you know, monuments, street names, these kinds of things that much of which happened, you know, without the rest of French society, perhaps paying as close attention as people might do now. And if those things are being revisited and we're in a moment right now, well, particularly where I'm sitting in North America, I'm in Canada, but I'm watching closely what's happening in the U.S. And we have our own debates and questions about these things in Canada. And I imagine there are some in the UK, although I haven't heard as many raging right now <laughs> as there are, uh, you know, just south of me. I just wonder if you think there's anything to be learned from the ways that these communities are scrutinized or def- would defend the right to memorialization and commemorative practices, including physical memorials and monuments to mm-hmm. their past. If you would make any connection or see any connection between that context that you work on and some of the things that we might observe in the news more recently. So I'm not sure I have a fully thought out response to you, but I think the question of monuments is particularly interesting for the PNOR because uh, we are now 55 years from independence of Algeria, from the community's arrival in France. We're now onto what you might call the third generation of activists. Mm. And I think you can clearly see that activism is waning, that there is less commitment from younger generations to the kinds of causes that their parents got very agitated about and were very uh, committed to. And one of the results of that is that there has been a push in recent years to anchor the memory of the community in physical sites external to the community so as to preserve it beyond the lifespan of living witnesses. So, as I said, you had all these monuments and street names that went up before the war was really a topic of public um, debate. And now you are seeing another push to create physical structures to memorialise the conflict again. And there has been considerable pushback against that. But I certainly think that the piano are very tenacious about defending the monuments that exist. There was one in um, 
Marianne that was removed in 2000 um, after a long-running campaign by the League of Human Rights, and they, they succeeded in getting the monument removed, sorry, in 2008, and the Pianoir community simply continued to gather on the now empty site. So they continue oh. to hold their commemorations there, even though there's no monument, when in other cases, uh, in Bézier, for example, they were banned from gathering at a particular site um, and eventually got that ban overturned. So they've certainly pushed back against any attempt to mm. what they would see as erase them from the national landscape and therefore the national memory. Mm. And they often say, well, you know, other communities have their monuments. Why can't we have ours? And they also try to depoliticize what they're doing. So one of the things that's often controversial about their, their memorials is that they will memorialize members of the OAS who committed crimes against the French state, including acts of terrorism. Um, and the PNR present these men, and it's predominantly men, as simply victims of the war. Mm. And that's what's problematic for, for many uh, French observers. Sure. But it's also part of this strategy of depoliticizing it and saying, well, we're simply having a monument to, to commemorate our war dead in the same way that any other community would be allowed to do. And if you stop us doing that, then you're discriminating against us. So they're also quite clever in the way that they seek to preserve these monuments and the arguments they use in, in relation to that. I mean, I just asked the question like that, but it's pretty fascinating to think about it because I think people reach for the post-war German example as the kind of obvious case, right? And I mean, this is a very, very complicated question. I don't want to oversimplify it, but it is interesting to think about cases that are, yes, from a certain perspective, obvious, but then also have these other players involved and other perspectives involved. I think as well, there's there's an interesting dynamic to be brought out here between the national and the local. So mm. one thing that the piano art community don't have is a national marker to their history. And there have been various proposals for monuments or for museums, including one in Marseille, and they've never come to fruition. And that is usually because um, the scientific committees that have been assembled cannot agree on, on what a monument or a museum would contain, what it would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas, and so in reality, it's at the local level that you see this um, physical imprinting of the Pianoir memory, where they've been able to find sympathetic local municipalities, um, often because they have Pianoir mayors. You know, um, Perpignan has in 2012 opened um, a centre for Pianoir history, and that is undoubtedly connected to the fact that their current mayor, Jean Marc Rougeau, is a Pianoir himself. So I think. Again, you have an interesting, what the piano would see as absence at a national level, whereas in fact, locally, they've been much more successful Mm -hmm. at implanting um, their narratives and and physical markers of their community. Mm -hmm. And again, the Haki, in theory, have a national memorial, but it's in the south of France, it's quite out of the way. It doesn't really strike me as having national resonance, even though that's what it's labelled as. Mm -hmm. Whereas they have their national day of commemoration, that I think is is more more of a national marker. There's no national day for the Pianoir, for example, and nor do I see one coming. No. Well, Claire, there are so many questions I'd like to ask you, but I'm just going to ask you one more, which is, what are you working on now? Um, I am trying to, I I feel unable to leave the Pianoir community behind. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I'm currently starting a project that aims to look at settlers from French Algeria who fought in the First World War mm-hmm. and think about the ways in which those stories have not been told because they were French citizens. So they kind of disappear mm-hmm. into broader narratives about French soldiers. But I am interested in the extent to which their colonial um, situation 
gave them a different perspective on what it meant to fight for France and also the relationship between them and both the metropolitan troops they served alongside and also, of course, the, the many colonial soldiers that they served alongside and, and commanded. So that's that's the next project, although it's mm. proving a little tricky to, to find sources, but I'm working on it. How are those soldiers counted? I mean, I hadn't really thought mm. about this. There's French soldiers and then there's colonial troops, right? And I just, but they would be counted among the French soldiers, French, French yes. soldiers. And then, Absolutely. and, but so there wouldn't have, been, and then the integration into units. So there wouldn't have been separate units. Uh, you might not know yet. I don't know. I just, <laughs> uh, it's fascinating. Uh, yes and no. So they are counted with the metropolitan French troops in most senses. Their mobilization is the same under the same rules. But they do, and they often serve in metropolitan army units. They're in the infantry, for example, they're in the air force, etc. But many of them went into the army d'Afrique. Yeah. which was mobilized. So most of the army d'Afrique remained in Morocco because uh, they were busy, quote-unquote, pacifying Morocco at the time. But three divisions were sent to fight in metropolitan France, the 37th, 38th, and 45th. And settlers formed a large proportion of that, again, alongside metropolitan troops. And also the, the tirailleurs and the, the other units into which Algerian Muslim soldiers went were usually commanded, well, they were always commanded by European officers, and many of those European officers were settlers. So in some senses, they do simply blend in, but in other senses, they are distinct. And, and the Zouave are the, the regiments in particular, the, or the units, sorry, in particular, that held a lot of settlers. Huh. Um, and that many settlers wanted to go into because um, had a very positive historical a reputation for being very brave, for being very effective on the battlefield. So there's a lot of pride about being able to serve in in a Zouave regiment. Hmm. Wow, that's uh, that's really really interesting, and I hope you'll keep me posted on the progress of that project. Claire, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me and for writing the book. And thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me about the book. 